We hear the term herd immunity being thrown around in the news a lot. We thought we hear Eureka should join in. This time I'm bringing friends. Welcome, Ken, to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Thank you, Mary. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm here with Ken Henderson. Ken, can you tell us what you do here? Yes, I'm the Senior Director of Laboratory Services. It means I get to work with a lot of really cool scientists here within not only Research Animal Diagnostic Services, but also the genetics area, and a lot of the scientists that work among the RMS technologies. And what does RMS stand for again? I thought everybody knew. It's no. Research Models <laughs> and Services. All right, excellent. We're here to discuss herd immunity now with a lot of measles outbreaks and other topics in the news that have been popular lately. This term comes up a lot and it's a pretty simple concept. Can you explain it to us? Sure. Um, and we actually have to practice that a little bit here at Charles River on a smaller scale with our research models. But the idea is this, is that you're trying to create a barrier to prevent viruses from spreading to the complete population. By populating the herd, you're protecting, you're putting up a wall to protect that herd by giving a vaccine to the animals in that group. The idea is that if you can vaccinate the herd, then none of the components of the herd, the individuals, will get the disease. So do you have to vaccinate the entire herd to achieve herd immunity or just most of it, or does it depend? That's the idea. I think the challenge with herd immunity is that you still have individuals within a group. So Although your, your goal may, let's say you have a thousand head of cattle and your goal is to immunize all thousand head, well, some of the vaccinations may be partial in the group. For some reason, maybe one animal or several animals got less than an infectious dose and so maybe they're not going to respond. In other cases, you might have a situation where the vaccine was forgotten altogether. But human error. Human error, absolutely. Yeah. And then for some reason, and no different than a human population, in a livestock population, you might have animals that for whatever reason didn't respond to the vaccine. So although your intent was to vaccinate all the animals, you may only have partial, but still it's usually enough to create that barrier in the group to prevent a large enzootic infection among that population. Herd immunity works the same for humans, right? Maybe just a little bit more complicated? Yes, yes. When you're running a herd, the manager of that herd dictates that all the animals get to be vaccinated. And that isn't always the case in the human population. Not, um, not quite, no. <laughs> no. Um, and, and so for that reason, you have more holes. You think of a herd being a single group of animals, but actually those animals may be grazing on land with other cattle sometimes, especially on public lands or they could be exposed to veterinarians or other workers that might go from herd to herd. They could also serve as vectors for, for some of these diseases if one herd mm. has a virus. You have that situation, a herd, and it's no different. It becomes more complicated with people. People are on the move. We are no longer staying in our small towns anymore. People take jobs all over the world, and so air travel has taken off quite a bit. And although we see some diseases at a very low prevalence in the United States, we still have visitors from other countries that can bring some of these same diseases into our country and mm -hmm. spread to populations. And that's where the concern comes with a population that maybe isn't completely or only partially vaccinated. Right. That's probably why they call it community immunity when they're talking about humans instead of herd immunity. 
when we're talking about humans, we get the added wrinkle of some people aren't able to get vaccines for whatever reason, either they're immunocompromised or they're too young. How does that add a wrinkle to the works? It does because there's that section of the population that for whatever reason either can't receive a vaccine or they can't respond to the vaccine. So in some ways, as you call it, community immunity, it is important because it kind of puts the responsibility on the community to become vaccinated. You have individuals that might be going through cancer therapy or organ transplant, individuals that might have autoimmune diseases like HIV, where they are unable to do that. If these people can't receive vaccines, at least the population around them can do that. And so you think of no different than the cows, not that we're all cows, <laughs> but it, it's certainly in the same sense, it protects those individuals, maybe those people who have those challenges in the community. That's why I think that's where part of the argument is for making sure everybody does be responsible, that they take that responsibility and become vaccinated. Yeah, obviously the elephant in the room is the anti-vaccination movement. What would you say to people who might be hearing these arguments and think that there's some sort of validity to them? I think, unfortunately, you're right. I think there's a lot of information on the internet that is fairly vocal. I guess the only recommendation I could make is to take time to talk to your medical doctor and ask their opinions, go a step further, and maybe actually look up some of the papers. I know it's a, sometimes scientific journals can become very heavy and they put people to sleep when they read them, <laughs> but a lot of times they'll take some of that information and they'll put them in abstracts at the beginning of an article, or there might be some adaptation of those articles that are in layman's terms to read. I think the evidence out there, and it's been out there, is that vaccinations, they help, they don't harm, is really the message that I think is coming from the medical community. You described to me earlier an analogy of a cruise ship and how that's a good example of having a contained population that's exposed to a virus with no vaccination, no immunity to the virus. Yes. <laughs> that's probably a perfect storm where you have a population pretty much held captive in a small space and they're sharing the same space. They're the same food locations, the same recreation location, swimming pools. Uh, norovirus is, is a notorious virus because it spreads easily. It's a very stable virus, and so it's nothing but a solid chunk of protein with DNA on the inside. <laughs> so you don't have any other, there, there are no weaknesses to this virus. Uh, there's even been cases in swimming pools where the chlorine level had gotten too low, and there was an outbreak as a result of norovirus getting into the pool. You can imagine how. <laughs> so you have these situations where the population on a ship is held captive, and there's really no stopping the break. And you can attempt to disinfect, you can attempt to clean the hands, but with all of the virus being produced, uh, and, and you're talking about billions, maybe even trillions of these virions coming from each person that becomes infected over time. It's hard to slow that down, and there's no walls. And I think that's where vaccination is, is one of these walls. And if you look at a laboratory animal facility, it does just that. It's a big wall and we're working with animals in a, a protected environment. Our goal is to make sure those, those animals stay healthy, they're happy, and they can be useful to the, the life science community. 
That's right. Can you explain some of the barriers that we put in place to protect the animals from cross-contamination? Sure. And in fact, we often refer to the rooms where we produce some of our research animals as barriers. Uh, mm. So that's actually what they're called. The food and water that enter into these facilities, are the water is treated, chlorinated, filtered. The feed and bedding are autoclaved. And so that makes sure that we don't have any variant particles that make it into these barrier room settings. Even the workers themselves are showering in and showering out that work with the, the animals in these barrier rooms. But even the, even the barrier rooms, because we have people in that environment, we may still have some bacteria, usually bacteria that are, that are not considered pathogenic, that might get to the animals. So even there, it's not a perfect situation. More these days, people are using a rack type called individually ventilated caging. And what these are is each cage has a filter on it. So the air coming into one part of the cage is HEPA filtered air. So very, very uh, Pure, filter, yeah. very highly filtered air. So very high particles can't come in. And that will get enter into the cage and then it will exit out of port. And then it, it, on the rack, there's a collection plenums where that air goes to and then it goes out. And that also will go through HEPA filter. All different kinds of barriers, basically. So you've got the lab barriers, you've got the filters, you've got the people decontaminated themselves, the clean food and bedding. You talk about the cruise ship, you have the barrier of the sea, <laughs> but unfortunately on the ship, there are no barriers. And then out in the real world with humans in real life, vaccines are the barriers? Vaccines is a primary barrier, especially for these agents that we know are highly contagious like the measles. Hmm. How is it that something like measles, which we thought was gone, can now come back just because some people aren't getting vaccinated. Well, it goes back to the fact that we're vaccinating pretty well here in the United States, not as good as we should, and, and we have populations that do not. But because there are not people that are vaccinated, then that's part of our herd. That's part of our herd that is not protected. So when we have visitors from other countries that we might associate with in, in airports, and these people could be, we could pass by them in a mall or in a restaurant, could just be a walk down the street. Measles, is that contagious? It, it could be, the, 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 right, the right location, the right transfer, and, and yes. And, and once you get it into a population where there are holes in the barrier, and in other words, people that are not vaccinated, that's when the opportunity comes up for it to spread. And then it'll find other people within that population that haven't been vaccinated. And then like on the cruise ship, once it gets a foothold, it just keeps going until it finally hits another barrier? Yes, and hopefully there are enough people vaccinated that it will eventually stop. We're not gonna see these giant endemic infections where it's gonna take off and, and people everywhere are gonna get the virus. It's gonna be more of a situation where the virus is gonna keep going as long as it finds people that are not vaccinated. Okay. And then you reach a dead end. You talked earlier about how we can become infected by someone coming into our community who hasn't come from a place where they vaccinate. That can also kind of happen with lab animals. I mean, if we're shipping these lab animals all over the world and we're getting some shipped to us, how can that affect their herd immunity? Well, the good thing about research is that people share their knowledge and their research materials with each other. That's good until it comes to the point of infectious disease. And so institutions use quarantine. So the name is no different than the quarantine we use for people. The animals are held for a period of time and they're tested 
and to make sure that they're free of agents before they're allowed to come into that animal facility. But if the quarantine fails and they don't detect the agent during that process, those agents still might come into the facility and spread to others. So there's certainly a risk, even in the lab animal community, uh, with all the barriers that we set up. Uh, and and the, no different from the, the traveler in the airplane. We've got the mice traveling around the country, or around the world, should I say. Or the old-timey cruise ship where they used to have to quarantine people before they let them dock. That, that, that's right. Uh, you know, and that was, there was a lot of that back during the plague. You know, the, the ships would dock off the ports for, for 40 days. And that's where the term quarantine comes from, uh, Italian and Latin for 40 days. And they had to wait and show that they weren't diseased before they could come on. Sure, so it's very similar to what we're doing with the research animals today. But I guess the plague rats who were on the ship could just swim to shore. I, I guess they could. I, I wonder if they've ever figured out how far a rat can swim before they have to worry about <laughs> getting on shore. I guess the moral of that story is no barrier is perfect. N no. That's no. why you need to always be paying attention. Yep, and, I, and I, so vaccination is one barrier. Um, and, and certainly we know that when we're around other people who are sick that we need to kind of avoid them and wash our hands. Uh, that's part of it too. But certainly for community immunity, as you said earlier, vaccination is, is a really important barrier for us to pay attention to. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today. This has been Mary Parker and Ken Henderson with Eureka's Sounds of Science.